You're listening to From the Burgundy Chairs, a podcast for health system leaders created by Santos Health. Hello, everybody. My name is Peter Cleary, and I'm a principal here at Santos Health. Uh, today, I'm joined by my, my colleague, Ross Wallace, and we are discussing the Patented Medicines Prices Review Board, otherwise known as the PMPRB. We're going to reflect back and, and hopefully look forward. Uh, before I get started, I want to invite our guest. Uh, we are joined virtually by Doug Clark, the executive director of the PMPRB. As a career public servant, Doug has a background in international trade law, international property policy, pharmaceutical industry issues, and competition law enforcement. In 2006, Doug became the director of the Patent and Trademark Policy Directorate at Industry Canada, where he led a number of legislative and regulatory initiatives under the Patents Act and Trade. Act, including the development of Canada's access to medicines regime and pharmaceutical patent litigation reform. In 2009, Doug joined the Competition Bureau as Assistant Deputy Commissioner and most recently became the Executive Director of the PMPRB in 2013. So, Doug, thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Peter. If that bio doesn't draw in millions of listeners, I don't know what will. Let's start by looking back. Um, so, Doug, you led the PMPRB for eight years. You have been instrumental in a reform process that has been in the works now for five years. Um, to try and level set, uh, what what concerns or what instigated the PMPRB to initiate this process? And coming out of it, how how is the PMPRB hoping to balance the the questions of of, of affordability and accessibility uh, when it comes to pharmaceutical drugs in Canada? Okay, well, thanks for starting with some simple questions. Um, <laughs> Nothing uh, simple when it comes to the PMPRB. No, that's unfortunately true. A lot to unpack there. Basically, uh, the PMPRB was, was conceived uh, back in the late 80s, um, forged in the crucible of Canada's first ever free trade agreement with the U.S., I like to say. And back in the day, um, sort of the primary policy tool uh, that the government would use to keep pharmaceutical spending uh, reasonable, let's say, was a system of compulsory licensing where uh, generic drug companies could copy a patented brand name drug at any point in the life cycle of the drug and sell it for a much cheaper price. And um, that system worked fairly well for a few decades, but uh, obviously, you know, the pharmaceutical uh, industry wasn't a big fan of that model. And so they, they convinced the uh, US uh, TR that the Reagan administration at the time to make um, its elimination a sort of informal condition of, of, of agreeing to the free trade agreement with Canada. So. That was eliminated and the government had to scramble to figure out, okay, well, um, now that um, we're offering full 20-year patents on pharmaceuticals, like any other field of technology, how are we going to ensure that prices don't, you know, um, spiral out of control, become unreasonable, become excessive? And so they decided to, in their infinite wisdom, create the PMPRB. And so we're a consumer prote protection agency, um, part of the federal health portfolio. Our job is to ensure that uh, patented medicine prices are not excessive. And so when we were created, uh, things were very different from, um, you know, our, our regulatory env environment was very different from 
how it is today. So for example, um, the types of products that we regulated were predominantly, if not exclusively, we call small molecule drugs. So simple chemical drugs um, that treated fairly common ailments like uh, blood pressure, cholesterol, depression, uh, and that were priced arguably within reach of, of you know, your average consumer. Fast forward to today, or to at least when PMPRB got on this reform track, the nature of the products that we regulate has really changed dramatically. Increasingly, the market is dominated by very, very complex uh, drugs, what we call biologics, polypeptides, proteins, massive convoluted chains of, of, of atoms uh, that are made by uh, living uh, cells, processes, and that can cost you know, upwards of 100,000 uh, and sometimes even millions of dollars a year. Um, so that's one big thing that changed and that we felt warranted us um, modernizing our regime. But other things have changed too in the intervening 30 years or so, particularly um, the backbone of our price control regime has always been, okay, let's compare prices in Canada with prices in other countries, what we call external reference pricing. And so if Canada was higher than these other countries, the price in Canada was higher than these other countries, we would say that's excessive and the company would have to lower their price. Well, in the intervening years, pricing has really gone underground so that list prices really don't reflect what payers are truly paying in the market. Uh, pharmaceutical companies now negotiate confidential rebates and discounts uh, routinely with large institutional payers, governments, private insurers. And so comparing the price in Canada, the fictional list price in Canada to a fictional list price uh, in another country really isn't all that useful a way of ensuring that your prices uh, aren't excessive. And I guess the other thing, I mean, there's a number of other, uh, I think, variables that, that um, led us, uh, that provided the impetus for, for this reform. But I think the other major one that's worth mentioning in, in this context is the establishment of the Pan-Canadian Pharmaceutical Alliance. So in 2010, all the public payers in Canada came together and decided that they wanted to harness their buying power of something that they never did before. They always sort of negotiated individually as provinces with individual drug companies. And so they formed this alliance we call the PCPA. And it's not a buying group per se, but it is a negotiating group. And so public payers in Canada, governments account for about 40% of pharm pharmaceutical spending. So by virtue of uh, forming this alliance, the PCPA, the provinces, and now the federal government are able to leverage their 40% uh, buying power and get and get better prices. So I, I think it's really those three things, the nature of the products changing, the, the fact that our main tool for ensuring that prices aren't excessive is, is kind of becoming obsolete and that um, public payers were getting better and better at negotiating lower prices where there was competition in the market. So where there are multiple competitors in the same therapeutic class, for example, same therapeutic space, provinces are able to get prices down by playing trading one company off the other. But where there is no competition, that's where they really need a regulator to step in and provide some kind of relief in instances of what we consider to be market failure, where the public and private payers are unable to negotiate um, let's say a socially acceptable price, a sustainable price 
um, with a pharmaceutical company. I mean, Doug, you uh, you alluded to the sort of drivers um, and changes in the system yeah. that sort of uh, were the impetus behind the, the reforms. And, and part of the other, um, I think, major driver was the fact that you just had not had a sort of comprehensive soup mm-hmm. to nuts, um, you know, rip it down to the studs, build it back up again. So the, so, you know, arguably you were overdue. Um, I mean, you're now a number of years into this reform process um, with, with a few more months at least to go. Uh, if you think about sort of some of the key takeaways or the reflections or the lessons learned from the process itself, there's things that sort of today, Doug, might have advised four years ago, Doug, on, uh, on, on ways to maximize or optimize that process. Um, any, any reflections that you've been mulling about in terms of, uh, of that referral process and, and where it's ended up versus where you thought it might end up? If you had told me um, when I embarked down this path that, you know, one of the principal opponents or main opponents uh, to moving forward with reforms that would get drug prices down uh, a, a little bit would be patient groups, I guess um, I, I probably wouldn't have believed you. And I think that's what makes policy um you know, bold policy initiatives in this space so daunting, I think, at the political level is because um, this, maybe the stakeholders that you expect to stand to line up behind you aren't necessarily going to do that. It's a lot more, the environment is, you know, a, a lot more complicated than that. And so you've got stakeholders sort of, you've got payers on the one hand that support you, uh, both, both public and private, and you've got the industry that opposes you, and then you've got patient groups sort of staggered across that divide. And I guess I probably would have um, maybe been a little bit more strategic about how to engage with the folks that, that, that make up that divide. Um, I, I recall what your, the second half of your question was, which was, you know, the balancing of affordability with access. And I, you know, I've, people sort of discuss it juxtapose those two concepts a lot as though they're opposing forces. I I really, you know, I still don't see it that way. To me, the biggest determinant of access is affordability. You know, the best drug in the world is not going to bring value to society if nobody can afford to pay for it, or if paying for it deprives multitudes of of effective health care, right? But but by the same token, a, a drug that costs a million dollars a year or more can represent excellent value, right? Depending on how well uh, and how well it improves patient health and how much it extends um, longevity patient patients' lives, right? So um, I guess the, the question is, where do you draw the line in trying to figure out where to set, you know, what the difference is between an excessive and a non-excessive price? And if you set it too low, um, you know, then you risk a situation where drugs might not come to Canada. I think that's the, you know, the fear and anxiety that motivates a lot of these, these patient groups who are concerned about these changes. And I, and I sympathize with them and I understand where they're coming from and I would feel the same way in, in their, in their shoes, I'm sure. Doug, when I was, um, <clears throat> preparing for this discussion, um, the challenge that I knew we, we had was how do we tease out an interesting conversation in a plain enough language um, that can speak to a diverse audience? And arguably that's the challenge I think the PNPRB has had for the past five years. Um, and uh, it's a diverse group and you kind of touch on it, some of which 
you know, you might have some stakeholders that support the reforms, some that support aspects of the reforms. And I think the, the divide between basket of countries and economic factors for sake of simplicity is, 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 that, is that divide. And then, and then you have the bucket of, uh, of those who are entirely against. And then you have this, and you just alluded to it, is the, you know, what's the underlying data that's informing the discussion? Mm-hmm. And what do you trust? And I think there's there's a there's a question amongst stakeholders in government, like and probably different facets of government in terms of of what data to trust. But the PMPRB's data and and what you rely on is that. And and I feel that um, you're in a bit of a a box in some respect. And I could imagine this conversation is an interesting balance to figure out what you know how to navigate navigate this in a in a bit of a more open discussion, but. Because I think the PMPRB is, you know, you're you're an implementer. Um, the government sets the regulatory agenda. Uh, the government sets the the parameters, uh, and then you need to go and implement. And given the stakeholder complexities, given that you know data uh, reliance uh, debate, um, how how have you? Um, how have you worked through this complexity when you're in many ways the government's face on this file uh, and the consultation conduit in at least the guidelines, uh, but also recognizing that you're in a box taking the government's direction? Yeah, that's really aptly characterized. Um, that is kind of the situation, the pickle that we find ourselves in. And I'll be the first to admit that uh, we have not done a very good job communicating um, our role, uh, you know, the nature of our role and the, and I guess the, the, the rationale uh, for the reforms and, and why, why they're warranted. And to some extent, it's not our place, right? Because as you say, you know, we don't, we're not the policy originator. We identify the issues and then it's up to higher levels of government to decide what they want to do. But ultimately we, we, you know, it then falls to us at a certain point to implement. But I think, you know, we, we've tried to get the data out there, uh, make the, get the data more public, which we feel pretty uniformly uh, supports the case for for these reforms and 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 our arguments as to why, or the government's arguments as to why, you know, slightly lower prices are not going to result in um, less access to new meds or um, less clinical trials in Canada or longer time to to get to market, et cetera. There, and it's true the data really doesn't show that and and. Uh, you know, we've been trying to, we've been holding public webinars and the like to try to make that data more accessible to people and and try to refute these claims. But I don't think it, the the realization that I've come to after um, some years of of trying to do this is that the data is not going to convince anybody, right? It's um, the, the folks who are opposed to this I think are better able at appealing to, are better able to appeal to people's fears, you know, and emotions, right? And and responding to to fear and emotion with data is not a very effective communication strategy. So we're actually in the midst of a, a bit of a rethink of how uh, we should go about communicating our role and these reforms to put more of a human face 
on on the agency and what it is that we're trying to do we still you know we're still trying to be a, a bit more proactive when we see studies and reports that um that purport to show a link between things that we don't feel are empirically connected and you know so we're we're a bit more active on social media and twitter and and saying well actually no this isn't correct you know there's a lag time in the data and now that it's caught up you can see clearly etc cetera, etc cetera. but um i don't think that's going to get us where we need to go i think we need to explain better to people uh canadians writ large why it's uh our uh, why you need a regulator in canada to ensure that prices are not just completely unreasonable excessive like that we are there for them and and this is why we're doing what we're doing and, and so we're doing we are doing quite a bit of work your question is quite timely trying to figure out how to how to present ourselves in a somewhat different light but it it is a challenge and you don't have the same um you know you're working from within government you don't have the same latitude as as a private sector you know uh, entity might so um but but it is something that uh that we're making a concerted effort to improve on and i'm hoping it will have the desired effect over time but it it takes it takes time it you know it's that old saying that lie travels you know around the world before the truth puts its shoes on right so uh, it's um it's it's not an easy thing to do and it is a very complex area and and uh yeah it's it's hard to make it accessible to people and and to put that human face on it Doug, you talked a little bit about sort of making use of time that's available to you. And certainly before the end of last year, you guys made a decision to, to sort of roll out your implementation date um, to, to July of, uh, of this year versus uh, January. Um, and obviously, you know, one of the drivers of that, I'm sure, is the massive global disruption known as, as COVID-19. Um, I'm wondering, uh, you know, whether... Um, COVID has influenced a lot of things in a lot of different ways. It, it certainly has um, lifted the question of kind of domestic biomanufacturing, global supply chains, the vaccine industry, how we value innovation and compensate it. Um, a lot of these questions are now probably uh, not that we have dinner parties anymore or cocktail parties, but if we did, um, they would be the kind of things people would be talking about in a way that perhaps a year, two years, five years ago, they weren't. And I'm wondering if uh, in your mind, that sort of uh, intensification of the discussion around um, sort of biopharmaceutical innovation, compensation thereof, um, value, pricing, uh, whether that has been sort of a, a, an additional complicating or confounding factor for you guys as you think through um, your reform process and, and the timing and the components of it. Yeah, it, it has been to some extent, and you're probably aware of um, any number of op-eds uh, that have appeared in, in, in recent weeks, you know, as the trials and tribulations of Canada uh, securing vaccine supply, you know, have kind of waxed and waned. And, uh, that, you know, some people have made the claim that, um, you know, the government's effort to uh, get prices down, one of the reasons why we're having such a difficult time securing, you know, the vaccine, the amount of vaccine that we need, which I, I find sort of counterintuitive in that it's, I think it's intended to be a criticism of the government, but what it's really saying is companies are um, shortchanging us out of spite, <laughs> you know, because, and I, I just don't believe that to be the case, uh, you know, uh, in, in their defense. Uh, it's interesting. I was listening to um, 
uh, Téléjournal, the French uh, CBC last week, and uh, Fabienne Paquette, the head of uh, vaccines for Pfizer Canada, um, was was being interviewed by Patrice Roy, and he, he put the, the he put the question to him quite uh, blatantly and directly, like, would Canada be faring better uh, in terms of uh, securing supply if we had paid a, if we had negotiated and paid a higher price? For, for the vaccines. And his answer, uh, you know, point blank was absolutely not. I mean, there, there are re- the reason why, for example, Israel uh, is the first country to um, be, you know, be in a position to vaccinate its entire population is because Pfizer prioritized that country because it was the best model for um, assessing clinical uh, effectiveness outside a clinical setting in the general population because of that country's ability to mobilize its population. Um, you know, they can call up 25, 30, 35% of their, their civilians as reservists, right? So they know how to get, so it, it, it's much more complicated than, than just pricing, right? I mean, there are a multitude of, of variables that go into, uh, you know, why um, companies prioritize one country over another. But certainly, you know, it's it's been ill-timed on, uh, you know, not not just for us, right? I'm not going to complain uh, about that. But um, I should I should uh, just make the point, however, um, that it wasn't our decision to delay the coming into force of these changes, these reforms. Um, again, this is a, a regulatory uh, change, and it's responsibility of the Minister of Health and, and of, uh, of Cabinet. And in its wisdom, you know, cabinet decided that it was just, as you put it, one more confounding factor that was not welcome, you know, in this current environment. And I understand that decision and, of course, support it. Um, we're, you know, we were ready to go. Uh, we remain ready to go. Um, but I think it does give us uh, a little bit of a little bit more time to focus on putting in place a robust uh, plan for how we're going to monitor and evaluate how the reforms are working once they do come into force in July of, of, of this year. So that's been really our focus, uh, our main priority since learning, uh, you know, of the most recent delay. So it was delayed twice. It was uh, the, the reforms were supposed to come into force in July of 2020. That was delayed six months to January 2021, and then in December. Uh, delayed again to July of 2021. So that's really where we're going to focus our efforts and energies over the coming weeks and months is making sure that we can rapidly assess how the reforms are, are working and take corrective action, you know, if the if the, the evidence supports doing so. On, on that thread, Doug, it was a nice transition. Um, uh, one of the reflections I was had, uh, well, I have now from the outside in and, and, and previously from the inside out is uh, how do you communicate what will happen when, when it comes to this filing and, and, and uh, provide uh, a predictable time frame to a community of individuals that you are not normally speaking with. And, and that, by that, I mean, the, the audience for these reforms are uh, beyond the uh, 
pharmaceutical technocrats. You kind of highlighted it. You have, you know, folks in government, cabinet, uh, uh, a diverse group of stakeholders, some that may be more in tune and, and some that's not. Um, but it, it's, a, it's a clear shift in, uh, in who the PMPB has to speak to. So this is kind of why um, I, think, I think to kind of get a sense of how you move forward, in the in the simplest terms, when you think about uh, you know implementation and specifically the two things that most people have a firm grasp of: basket of countries, economic factors. Mm -hmm. um, what will happen to the best of your ability? What will happen when? Uh, you know what what can individuals or companies or organizations mm -hmm. or groups expect on July first in twenty twenty two in twenty twenty three? You know, kind of walk us through. Sure. You know, what happens when and how? Um, sure, I'll, I'll do my best. Um, I, I, I should say, um, however, we are currently consulting on some of these timing questions because, uh, you know, we had a plan in place that uh, presupposed a January 2021 coming into force. And so once we were informed of that second six month uh, delay, then we had to go back to the drawing board sort of on, on the timing of some of this stuff. And we uh, recently had a, a notice, what we call a notice and comment period, uh, asking stakeholders, you know, what they thought made sense in, in terms of timing. So what we're proposing basically is that uh, as soon as the regime comes into force in July this year, that's when companies will um, start to have to provide us with pricing information on that new lower price list of countries that we're going to be comparing um, prices in Canada to list prices in Canada to so right out of the gate and that was the plan if it had come into force in January uh, that we were going to do that there was some question and there still is I mean we need to hear what stakeholders have to say as to whether we should wait for a full calendar year before we do that but the, the proposal that we've made is that you know it's in force we have to we have an obligation to implement as you say so as of July, that information needs to be coming in and, and filed by patentees. In terms of when they have to actually start complying with uh, the new ceiling prices that uh, apply to list prices in Canada as a result of this change uh, to a lower set of um, lower price uh, group of countries, what we're proposing is that happen in January of next year. So companies will basically have six months to if, if they find that um, their existing products are priced higher than the highest of those new 11 countries that we compare ourselves to. They'll have six months to get their list price down in order to become compliant. So that, that, that is the test for all existing products that we currently regulate. Uh, the, the ceiling price is the, the highest price in those 11 countries, which we feel to be you know, still a fairly generous uh, ceiling. So that's what, what we've proposed. Um, that's, so that's on the country's side of thing. Again, we need to hear what stakeholders think of that, uh, of that sort of sequencing of, of events um, before we make a final determination. Now, in terms of the economic factors, you know, that's a whole other can of worms. We've got two uh, major court cases ongoing that have really put a stick in the works uh, for us, um, I don't want to get into the weeds on it because you know it. It, it just uh, it will just add a further unnecessary layer of complexity. I think this whole conversation, but the result for us is that we're not going to be actually enforcing 
the much lower confidential ceiling prices, so not the not the list ceiling prices, but the actual net ceiling prices in Canada that would result from our applying these new economic factors until we have clarity from the courts. At least that's the plan today. So a lot of stakeholders, if you, as you alluded to, Peter, um, or some stakeholders have said, well, why don't you roll this out in two, two phases, two steps? Do the countries first, see how that goes. Do the economic factors second, once we understand them better. In essence, you know, de facto, that is what we will be doing because of um, the, confound, the confounding uh, intervening event of these two decisions, which um, you know, found that one aspect of, of the reforms is uh, not within the government's jurisdiction to, to, to introduce. Uh, and so uh, until we have clarity from the courts of appeal in Quebec and federal court, um, the only time that we're actually going to be opening an investigation and, and taking a company, holding a company to account is where their list price doesn't comply with these new uh, uh, ceiling prices that are a function of this new lower priced group of countries. Now, in terms of how that's going to impact, uh, you know, at the macro level, um, prices and spending in Canada, I mean, we've got that all forecasted out. Um, notwithstanding, you know, claims uh, that the sky is falling, um, the, the impact, we expect the impact to be relatively modest over the next decade. We'll see about a 6% reduction in list prices overall. We'll see about a 4% reduction in total pharmaceutical sales over 10 years. So that amounts to a neighborhood of $6.2 billion. But bear in mind that Canada spends about $19, $20 billion a year on patented drugs. So in the grand scheme of things, not a huge impact. Now, that could change depending on what comes out of those court decisions, because those economic factors, you know, that's a different ball game. Uh, they would result in lower ceiling prices that would apply to the net price. Uh, you know, those prices that are the subject of confidential rebates and discounts that I you know, alluded to in my introductory remarks. But for the time being, that is the forecast that the government, you know, in its initial estimate, um, I, I believe, indicated that it would result in about $9 billion in savings over 10 years. Our best estimate at this time um, is that it would be closer to about $6 billion, $6.2 billion. But with the, you know, the unknown, the known unknown of, of, of these court cases and what that will mean for how we roll out our um, implementation of the new economic factors. And I, I hope that made so I know it makes sense to you. Um, you know, I hope, I hope it made some lot of sense to, to people who are listening or will be listening to this podcast. You uh, you did a nice job of sort of laying out, let's say, the next sort of 6, 12, 18 months. If, um, if we had a chance to bring you back, let's say, five years beyond that 12-month period or, or, you know, 18-month period to reflect on kind of what you hope the successes will be that the reforms are going to lay the foundation for, how, you'll, how you will assess their success and their impact. Um, what are the kind of things that you would hope that you'd be able to talk about in, in five, six, seven years? How, how will you sort of look back and go, that worked out the way we hoped it would? And Doug saying that you will yeah. be retired by then is not a valid answer. <laughs> look, uh, I had a, my first boss um, when I started out years ago, I think I was 15. Uh, I was working for Ag, uh, Agriculture Canada as an assistant agrometeorologist. He used to say about anything in the future, if God spares us. Uh, so, you know, <laughs> 
I won't talk about retirement. I'll just let's let's you know uh, assume that I'll be alive in five years from now. Um, and if you have me back, uh, you know I'm sure people will be clamoring for you know a second uh, podcast featuring Doug Clark from the PMPRB. So when that happens, uh, you know that 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 comprehensive guidelines monitoring and evaluation plan I think sets out exactly the types of things that we'll be looking at in order to evaluate. Uh, success, you know, whether the regime is working as intended. But just stepping back for a moment, I think, you know, five years out, hopefully we'll be, we'll have come through that initial flurry of litigation, you know, that, I, that we can all expect as, as patentees, you know, test the boundaries of the new rules. And we'll be back to um, a very high compliance, voluntary compliance rate with our new guidelines, you know, north of 90%. Um, I'm hopeful that we'll see our forecasting on uh, spending bear out. So uh, that $6.2 billion uh, less spending over 10 years, you know, five years out, um, does it does it look about right? Uh, Canada, you know, in terms of access uh, to, to new medications, we're about 10th in the OECD in terms of timing and, and access to new meds. Uh, you know, I hope that our standing relative to other countries will uh, improve, um, and certainly, if, if not improve, not not get any worse. I, I expect that clinical trials will stabilize. I don't expect a reduction in clinical trial intensity. I really, really hope that we will see faster time to market uh, from, you know, the, the drug company submitting its new drug submission to Health Canada to going through the various, you know, steps to take it to, uh, you know, public and private insurers and, and negotiating a price that they can, they can, that they find sustainable. I'm hoping that, you know, our ceiling prices will expedite that process. That's really, you know, the underlying uh, logic and rationale to all of this is that it will, it will make that whole thing run more smoothly, but, you know, elevating a, a level two, and these are, these are, you know, moving parts that are outside of our, our immediate control, uh, certainly my immediate control. I'd like to see progress at a pan-Canadian level continue. You know, we've really, we have a tendency to work in silos in Canada because of the whole FedProv thing and there's multiple overlapping, you know, sometimes competing regulatory players uh, in the pharmaceutical space. There's been a lot of sort of coalescing in recent years. Uh, these you know, players coming together and trying to work better together. This government's committed to a Canadian drug agency, you know, a national formulary, pharmacare, a, a rare disease or a drug strategy. Like I'd, I'd love it if, if these, you know, disparate pieces were starting to come together and, and maybe you'd see even the PMPRB housed within to the extent that that role is still relevant and necessary housed within a Canadian drug agency. So you've got a, you've got a, a, a you know, an, a government entity that has, you know, the provinces and territories have ceded jurisdiction to negotiate on behalf of the entire Canadian population, really leverage that national buying power. Private insurers can buy in, you know, I, I think there's still a place for private insurance uh, in, a, in a national pharma care program. That's just my own personal uh, view um, and then maybe in instances of market failure because sometimes even in the best of circumstances even when you're a monopsonist uh, you're a single buyer um, it's hard to negotiate with a monopolist when 
what they're selling is something that people need to survive and there are no competing alternatives. So I, I can see still a role for maybe, uh, you know, some kind of body that would uh, issue a compulsory license, let's say, and override a patent where, you know, you just absolutely can't ink a deal with the company uh, the, at a price that is sustainable for the system. Like I, I'd like to see that kind of progress take place at a, at, a, at a level above us. And I'd like to be able to have some role in facilitating all that. And if it means the demise uh, or the end of PMPRB as, an, as a distinct entity, that's fine by me because I, I, I think there's a lot of e- obvious things that can be done to make the environment so much better here for industry, for patients, for everybody. But just because they're the obvious things to do doesn't mean they're the easy things to do, you know? And, and certainly that has been our experience over the course of the past five years. You know, I, I think most people would agree prices need to, you know, we've seen crazy pricing in, in, in recent years. You've seen, you know, a five-fold increase in the number of drugs that cost over $10,000 a year, for example. Um, something needs to be done about that, but you know that doesn't mean it's an easy thing to do. None of these things are easy, but but we have to we have to do them because I don't think we have a choice. Doug, I wanted to uh, uh, thanks for coming and talking so openly with us. Um, I think I think uh, I think I thought I was a little bit crazy at first when I thought about doing a podcast on PMPRB given the last five years. Because uh, it's right in the heart of contention. There's a lot of um, there's a lot of views on this, uh, and as consultants, we're we're often in the middle. But the one thing I like about my my job is that you know we can create the opportunity to have the space for a dialogue, and that it's still possible despite everything that uh, that has gone down. Uh, and and the fact that we were able to talk through some of these things today, I'm sure there's a lot of technical, detailed questions that a lot of people might have coming out of this that. Uh, that some may wish we would have asked, but uh, for what it's worth, I, I think this was a helpful level set to try and plain language uh, a little bit of what 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 you've been working on, and then teasing out uh, some of the challenges on the way. And 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 I think your closer was was helpful to frame up what uh, what success could look like down the road. So thank you for joining us, and uh, thank you Ross for for joining along with me, and and. Uh, Really appreciate it. Just let the record reflect that Ross has been nodding encouragingly at my answers. And I, I really it was a lot of value added for me. You know, I, ah. I felt appreciated. Uh, and I, I, I really do. Um, I, I appreciate the opportunity. Thanks for inviting me, guys. I, I hope it's interesting to people and, uh, and compelling. Thanks, 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 Ross. Thanks for listening. You can find this episode and more on our website at santashealth.ca and on our Twitter at santashealth. This has been from the Burgundy Chairs.